Welcome to Emmaus. My name is Sandy, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. And um, it's just great to worship with you all this morning. I'm really looking forward to this morning. Um, and before I introduce our special speaker today, um, we're going to have the ushers come forward. And if you need a Bible, would you raise your hand? They would gladly give you one. Also, they have some message notes so you can follow along this morning. And then finally, we have these communication cards. And if this is your first Sunday with us, we really hope that you get one of these cards and uh, fill that out so we can keep in contact with you. Uh, if you have um, any contact information that has changed, we hope that you get one of these and let us know so that we can um, change that in our da database. Also, we'd love to pray for you, so if you have a prayer request, please use those, and then you can put them in the baskets a little bit later. All right. Okay, well, friends, it has been 10 weeks when we said goodbye to the Oates family for their sabbatical trip. They have had life-changing gelato. <laughs> I'm sure of it. And there has been living with some monks that I know I'm excited to hear about, and so are you. So would you welcome with me uh, back here, Nathan Oates. Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We missed you. Uh, we prayed for you. Uh, I want to thank you for being the church this summer, for caring for one another, for leaning into relationships, for encouraging each other, uh, for uh, meeting needs, um, for supporting us in this sabbatical experience, which is a huge gift and for being a kind of community that's backing healthy staff and rhythms in our, uh, in our life together that, that support that kind of thing. I want to thank uh, Ryan for preaching last couple weeks, and Nick for preaching the couple weeks before that, and Jeremiah and Joshua. We had fantastic preaching here this summer. I've got to see about half of the sermons so far. I want to thank um, uh, Rich and Sandy and the whole staff team for leading so well this summer. Thank you guys very much. There's, it's a beautiful gift to be able to leave with such confidence that the place is going to continue and the thing that you love so much is going to continue to receive the kind of leadership that you, um, that you hope will continue. Thank you, Angela, for leading at the table all summer long. Really appreciate that. And just thank you again for being the kind of place that's supporting healthy rhythms and specifically and, and personally for supporting us so well, my family and myself. Uh, in 2011, when we returned from a sabbatical break, our, our first Sunday gathering and barbecue was out at a piece of property we used to own on Virginia Town Road, and I was talking to people who were standing in line for a barbecue, and I didn't, I recognize, I didn't recognize somebody, so I walked up to them, and uh, I said, hey, my name's Nathan, and I said, are you new to Emmaus? And he said, yeah, we started coming the last few weeks here in the summer, and so far it's going really well. We're a part of a home group, and we're serving in the kids' ministry. And then he said this, but well, we haven't met the pastor yet, so hopefully that's a good thing. That's what he said. <laughs> and I said, well, now you have. I'm the pastor. Uh, so if you've joined with us in the last 10 weeks or so, uh, my name's Nathan. I'm the pastor, and I hope that's a good thing. 
uh, for you and for me. Uh, I want to offer a, a short series of teachings as we kick off the, the month of August, see if I can remember how to preach here. Uh, my hope is to faithfully preach the word, and I also want to share some stuff from our summer, some personal experience. One of those is much more important than the other, I realize, but I want to share primarily with you because you're our community. I want to share some of the stuff that God has done in our lives and in my life personally. So I've titled this short series, Monks, Moms, and Missionaries, How Radicals Remind Us How to Live. There's lots to cover in the next couple weeks. I want to talk a little bit about radicals and extremists today. I want to talk about St. Benedict of Nursia. I want to talk about some things that I noticed while praying with monks, and then end with a question and some practical hints uh, moving forward. So there's a lot there, but let's just jump in to that. First, a story about Italy. Guess what I found in Italy? I found gelato. I did. I found gelato. That's one thing. Yes, we, I think we had gelato 31 times in 30 days, so we were, we were pretty good. No, I, I found 1987. Yeah, in Italy. Um, I thought that was so funny. That did not land. Um, almost every cafe we went to was playing stuff, music from the mid, like pop music from the mid-1980s. Uh, like the stuff that used to come out of my little fake wooden uh, clock radio that I would wake up to, Quad 106, morning show every morning before like junior high. Um, like, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Cindy Lauper. Are you guys with me at all? All right, good. Huey Lewis in the news. Okay, this stuff was just everywhere. I have not heard this since I was in sixth grade, right? Um, it was everywhere. I remember the first time, you know what it was? It was totally rad. That's what it was. It was totally rad. I remember the first time I heard the phrase totally rad. I think I was in sixth grade, and I didn't know what it meant, so I asked Jennifer Snyder, because she was cool, what does totally rad mean? And she said, totally rad is short for totally radical. And I was still totally confused, and, but I was too embarrassed to ask any more questions. So for a couple of years, like before I really got into words, I just thought radical meant generally good, cool, right? Or if you were in the 80s, bad. Because in the 80s, if it was good, it was bad. Like now, if it's good, it's sick. Or if somebody does something really well, they're raw. I'm not really sure how that works. But anyway, this is what was happening there. Um, I'm, I'm coming into this sort of strange uh, experience, and I'm thinking about this idea of radical all summer. The word, what the word actually means, the word radical, it comes from this word, from the Latin word radicalis, which is a combination of radix, which means root, and alis, which just makes it an adjective. So the actual meaning of radical is, we could say it means root-like, or at the root, which really leads us into the big idea of the series that I want to cover in the next couple of weeks. The main concept, the idea that I want to kind of talk about is this. Life comes from the root. Life comes from the root. When a plant is separated from the root, it begins to wither and die, and so it is with people. When we get separated from the root, all kinds of problems ensue. Uh, life comes from the root. And the closer we get to the root, the closer we get to the source of life. And when we're wandering, when we're searching, when we're confused, one of the things we ought to do is look for people who are living close to the root and follow them because they will show us the way back to the source of life. So this is a series about getting back to the source. I'm interested in rediscovering or in maybe discovering some new things about the source 
of life, the essence of faith, the real meaning of marriage, the heart of being a father. I want to get back so many peripheral languages and messages and books because you got to say something new in order to be, uh, you know, to get anybody's attention. And so we get lost in the detail. I want to come back to the source. I want to fall back in line with like the core radical idea, get back to the root. Um, in, in other words, what I don't mean by radical is extremist. That's what I don't mean. And, and it's really important that we understand the difference, and I want to be clear about this, because we often allow these two words in our culture, radical and extremist, to mean almost the same thing, when in fact they don't mean the same thing, and they're actually opposites. Radical comes from the word that means root. Extremist comes from Latin, this word extremis, which means the outermost, like the exterior wall. Or the farthest away from, like the extremities, farthest away from your heart, or like the extreme uh, distance away from. So an extremist is actually not the same as a radical, truly. An extremist accurately understood is the opposite of a radical, in the sense that an extremist occupies that space at the very outermost edge, whereas a radical occupies the space right at the core, right at the center, right at the source. So two quick thoughts about this um, before we get into specifics. First thought, what's in a word? You know what? Words mean to you what they mean to you, right? And we're not going to argue about the meaning of words. I'm simply trying to um, point these two words out in contrast in order to, uh, in order to bring clarity to the message that I want to bring in the next couple of weeks, which is that life comes from the root, I was a youth pastor from the late 1990s uh, to the early 2000s, and everything in that season of youth ministry, if you were involved in it, you remember, was extreme. Extreme prayer, extreme, you know, ski trip, extreme youth ministry. And it wasn't extreme enough to spell the word, you just had to put an X and then dream, right? Everything was extreme. I'm not sure what we were trying to do. If it wasn't extreme, like it wasn't good or something like that. But so words mean different things at different times. I, I understand that. Um, what, what, what I'm trying to say is that radicals, those who live at the root, close to the source, are the ones who, I'm going to argue, teach us how to live. Uh, point us back to the source. Focus us on the main thing. Call us back to what really matters. That's the first thought. Second thought, what is or who is the extremist? You might feel, as I do, that some of the lives we will consider in the next few weeks are pretty extreme. I'm going to talk about St. Benedict of Nursia, 6th century Italian monk. I'm going to talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus, 1st century Jewish teenager, gives birth to a little boy. People say he's God. Eastern Church calls her Theotokos, the God-bearer. I'm going to talk about the Apostle Paul, who was part of this strict Jewish sect that persecuted Christians, and then he becomes a Christian and writes most of Christian scriptures. So I'm talking about some pretty extreme, at least from one standpoint, people we might think that the, to live like one of those people, seriously, you're going to hold up Mary? You're going to hold up Paul? Like, this almost sounds like that's on the outer edge of what's possible. Is that even realistic for us to look to people like that? And of course, we, can, we see all people in relation to ourselves, and we all think, I'm normal, right? We all see ourselves as normal. We all see ourselves as this is basically real life. This is what's realistic. It's the life I'm living. 
And so people like Benedict and Mary and Paul, man, they're so different from us. They're so far out there. So here's what I want to invite you to just make room to consider. Make room, simply allow for the possibility that those we might consider to be extreme are actually not extreme. They're radical. I want, you to, I want to ask you to consider that maybe there's something about the lives of monks and moms and missionaries that even though they appear to some to be on the outer edge of life, maybe they're actually at the very core of it. Maybe they've discovered the root. Maybe they're really close to the source. And if some of the examples that I share feel like so far away from reality, then consider this. Maybe it's we who have moved. Maybe we're the ones whose lives are pretty extreme when it comes to pace, when it comes to priorities, when it comes to the management of our resources. And maybe these radicals can actually show us the way back to the source of life. All right? So that's where we're headed. This summer, uh, as Sandy said, my family and I got to travel around in Italy for a few weeks, which was just wonderful. Um, All our time spent together, public transportation together, eating a lot of gelato together. It was good. Uh, And then they returned here to Lincoln for sports and work commitments. And I stayed in Italy for another month by myself, uh, which was a long time. And uh, I spent several days walking. And then I spent at the end of the month, I spent several days in solitude. And in the middle of the month, I spent um, my time at a Benedictine monastery up in the mountains in this little town called Norsha, which happens to be the birthplace of um, a man named Benedict, 480 A.D. This little boy is born in Norcia. At the time, it was called Nursia. And his mama named him Benedict. Here's a quick sketch of, um, of, of St. Benedict. He was born a couple of generations after the fall of Rome. And so when he moved from his hometown in Nursia to go study at university in Rome... It was, Rome was a super shaky place, uh, very corrupt, the government was unstable, and even more important and worse for, for uh, Benedict is that the church was hopelessly corrupt. And so before he even finished his freshman year or his first year of university, he dropped out of school to go live as a hermit in a cave by the river. And that, as someone who's like looking forward to college for one of my kids, I'm thinking, how would that feel as a parent? If your 19 or 18-year-old kid drops out their first year of university and says, I'm going to go live in a cave by the river, right? Uh, but what's interesting is that apparently this is not, they didn't feel the way about it as I would feel about it today because all kinds of people followed Benedict to the cave. And they started living in caves by the river right next to him and asking, them, asking him to be their leader and to teach them the ways of, of God. And he eventually had so many people that he, he organized them into little 12-member communities, 12 monasteries of 12 men each. And the reason I went to Norcia, this town where Benedict was born, is this. There are uh, 14 men who live in community there according to this little book, The Rule of St. Benedict, which is the only thing Benedict ever wrote. He wrote it. It's a super practical book that organizes and regulates and structures the life that these men will live as they lived. Some order was needed, right? Some structure was needed. And so there's this group in Italy that is still living according to this book. And Benedictine monks all over the world still are. In fact, this book's never gone out of print, which is pretty incredible. 
And so this book, the regula, or in, in English, the rule, structures their whole life together, where they eat, when they eat, how they sleep, where they sleep, how they work, just about every part of their life. And the motto of Benedictine spirituality is this, ora et labora, prayer and work. And it's been that since like the 500s, prayer and work, and that's their whole life. And in some ways, it's just very simple. And in other ways, it's very intense. And that's one of the things we're going to run up against as we consider this theme over the next few weeks, is when we get back to the source, when we push back towards the root, when we, when we try to get to the heart of something, it's very simple. Go that way, right? And yet it will almost always be very intense because of the ramifications of getting back to the source, that what really matters. It will be intense. So I'm sitting in the ruins of a 16th century church, and I'm feeling overwhelmed by the simple intensity of living with monks just a few days in to my experience one early morning in June, and I've been trying to live according to their schedule, like jump right in with them. They invited me all the way in, and, uh, and I'm feeling overwhelmed by it, and so I decided I would sit there with their schedule, which I had taken a picture of with my phone, and I'd add it up and try to figure out what they were doing, and this is basically what it works out to. Eight hours of prayer, eight hours of work, and eight hours in which you can sleep and eat. Very simple, right? Very intense. Uh, depending on what you see as normal, potentially really intense, right? At least in one category. Um, so I'm feeling, it, it was feeling that way to me. And because I track these kinds of things in my life, too, and have for a long time, I thought, well, let's just do this for fun. Let's make another little pie chart of Nate's life, right? So here's what my life looked like the first uh, semester of 2018. I, I was praying very little, like 15 less, less than 15 minutes a day, um, working at least 10 hours a day, sleeping seven hours a day. In fact, I averaged six hours and 59 minutes. Um, I ate, I eat, I take a long time to eat. I, I eat like an hour and a half a day. I, I was surprised at that, not super happy about it. Um, and then I have uh, a couple of categories that don't even show up if you're a monk, because I have a family. So um, I have this personal category, the red, if you can see that, which is stuff like mowing the lawn, going to the gym, those kinds of things. And then I have family like bedtime and driving to school and going to baseball games and things like that. So those two things take up like a, at least five hours a day for me. So at least two things stand out about my routine, especially in contrast to monk life. Mine is more, or I should say mine is less simple, is it not? Mine is less simple. I just have more categories. And I would say also mine is less balanced. And, and I'll just be the one to say it. It's out of balance. Okay. It's out of balance. Which leads me to the question, who is the extremist? Whose life is extreme? Who is on the outer edge of what's real and true and good? You ever track your days? You ever track your weeks? You should do this. You should give this a try. You should track the way you spend your time if you haven't. Maybe you haven't since college or grad school or something like that. I imagine if you track the use of your time, you will be surprised at some things. You may be disappointed at some things. There may be even a part of your life about which you're pretty embarrassed to be like actually honest about, wow, I spend that much time doing that, or I spend that little time doing that. Um, and so because it can be disappointing and uncomfortable and even embarrassing, what we do is we compare ourselves to people who are just like us. Because when we compare ourselves to people who are just like us, we actually look pretty good. 
Like every month, I get this letter from PG&E, and it compares the use of my house's energy to other similarly efficient houses. And I always come out looking really great, like we're some sort of amazing environmentalists, right? But what it doesn't do is compare our energy use to like, like a typical house or every house or the best house or the ideal house. Because it compares us to similarly energy-efficient homes, I end up feeling pretty good about myself. And, and that's what happens. This is what we do. So you may track your life and you may realize, oh my gosh, I spend 90 minutes a day on Facebook. But then you look around and you're like, but my friends spend like two and a half hours on Facebook every day, right? And so I feel pretty good about myself. Or, or I spend like less than a half an hour a day talking to my kids. What's the matter with me? But then you look around to people just like you and you're like, well, they're spending about nine minutes a day talking to their kids. So I end up looking pretty good. Or you look at your day and you're like, man, I, I pray like three minutes a day. But then you look at your friends and you're like, well, they don't pray at all unless they're about to get in a car wreck or something. That's the only thing. And so I end up looking pretty good, right? And, and then we make, we make each other feel okay about it. About what? About our extreme lifestyles is what we're making each other feel okay about. And our whole culture starts to slide farther and farther away from the core of the circle and closer and closer to the edge of the circle out towards the extremes. And one of the great gifts that I was given this summer by living with monks who are men who love Jesus just like me, but who are in almost every other way not like me, uh, was to immerse myself in their schedule, to work with them, to eat with them, to pray with them, and to begin to see how my life is so different, to begin, begin to let them reveal to me the ways in which, um, you know, I'm not like them. My kids started referring to it as monk camp. So uh, let me share with you a couple of things that I experienced at, at monk camp. Some observations made while at monk camp this summer. Dear mom, these are ways in which I was significantly challenged. And I've decided to be transparent with you because, as I said, you're my community. Um, and this happens in community, right? And also because my hope, friends, is that some of the things that I've experienced and been challenged by will be challenging and helpful to you. And I'm not sharing them as an expert because I'm certainly not. I'm a learner and I've been um, confronted with some places in my life that really need to be adjusted. And um, so I'll point those out to you um, as, a, as part of our church together. First, easily the most significant part of life at the monastery, the point at which I was the most intensely challenged was the, the practice of prayer, as you probably saw in the pie chart. Monks pray a lot. Uh, they pray all day. Um, they pray throughout the day. And this is really nothing new. Monks haven't made this up. People have, been, people have been praying consistent times throughout the day for a long, long time. In fact, there's a place in Psalm 119 where David says, seven times a day I praise you. And he's not talking about just seven random times when he feels like it. These are like seven specific times throughout the day where he, he praises the Lord, where he worships the Lord. And they're still doing this in the New Testament. You can see it in the background of some of the stories, like in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are walking to the temple at the time of prayer. And then English translations say, at about three in the afternoon. In the original language, it says, at the ninth hour, like the ninth hour of daylight. Why? Because that was a scheduled, focused, structured time of prayer. It wasn't like they felt like praying, church happened to be open. No, this was like, this was what Jews did. They prayed at the hours or these specific times during the day. And this is uh, still going on in some communities, specifically in monastic communities, um, they absolutely still pray like this. And the really old ones or the traditional ones, like the one I got to visit, 
They're still praying like this all the time. So the bell, the bell, the bell went off for the first time of prayer at 3.15 in the morning. And that's when we would get up and we would meet in the chapel and we would pray. It's called a vigil or a night watch. You've read something about that in Psalms, right? Um, The idea is to pray in the morning. And, And so this is a funny story. I'm like sleepwalking into the chapel and they have these beautiful leather dark bound books and the prayers are in there, and the psalms are in there, and I'm, I can't find it. I can't. It's, it's like 800 pages. I cannot find where we are. I'm looking vigils. I'm looking night watch. I'm looking 3 a.m. I'm looking ridiculous. I'm like, what is it? Where are we? Can't find anything. So I whisper to the guy next to me, I can't find it. He takes the book. He closes it. He looks at the spine. He points it out. He says, this is because the word diurnal means day. It's called the monastic diurnal. And he's like, it's because the word diurnal means day. Like, and it's clearly not day right now. <laughs> like, where are you? So he takes the other book, like the nocturnal prayer book, and he gives me that, and I find the, the prayer time, like for the nocturnal prayers. But here's the basic, I thought that was so funny at the time. I was, uh, of course, a lot of things were funny at three in the morning. <laughs> basic schedule that uh, the monastic, the, the Benedictine monks, or the monks follow in, in Norcia, it's the one that's prescribed in the rule by St. Benedict. They get up, first prayer time is at 3.30. They pray 14 to 18 psalms until 4.30 in the morning, and then they read their Bibles until 6 when we pray again. Then they have a private mass just for the monks, and then we gather again at 8 to pray. It's called prime, which is sneaky, because it sounds like it's the first one, but it's not. By the time you're done with prime, you've prayed almost six hours that day already, right? It's It's a lot of prayer. And then there's a little break for more reading of the Bible, and then there's prayer before lunch. And then after lunch, you know, you go out to work, but you work till sunset, but we're going to take a break for prayer at 3, and then another break for prayer at 6, and then we have dinner, and then the very thing you do before you go to bed is you pray. Right, right. So you're praying all day long. I felt like I prayed all day long, and actually it was more than a feeling because I actually did pray all day long. I prayed more in a day than I pray in two or three weeks, right, normal time. It's very difficult for me uh, for several reasons. One, they're chanting the prayers in Latin. That was a hurdle to try to figure out how to follow along in that. Uh, I actually really enjoy the chant, but I don't understand Latin. But the main reasons it was, it was uh, challenging were more internal. They were more personal. Began to notice how extreme, how on the outer edge, how far away from the root my prayer life has become. And how radical, how close to the root their way of life is specifically as it relates to prayer point out three things quickly. One, the value of prayer. I noticed that I have an extreme perspective on the value of prayer. My perspective, in other words, the way I feel about prayer is that I don't really accomplish anything. That was made clear to me. And so the way I felt about spending so much of my day praying was that I'm not getting anything done. I'm just praying. Any of you relate to, you think you might feel that way if you prayed like several hours a day? Any of you see the potential problem in that perspective? Yeah. So it's clear when I look at how little time I typically spend praying and how much time I typically spend working, what activity I believe gets stuff done. What activity I believe is the most important, which activity I perceive my community to value most highly. But this perspective, my perspective, is actually extreme. And it may not appear extreme to us. We may actually see praying less than 10 minutes a day and working more than 10 hours a day as pretty normal. And to pray more than that might actually be seen as extreme. Why would it be 
seen as extreme because, well, who has time for that? And what actually is getting accomplished by all of that? And so it just makes me wonder, who are the real extremists? The ones who rarely pray or the ones who pray all day? What is the farthest away from the root? Anybody here have a child? Anybody here have a parent? Okay, can you imagine, what if a son or a daughter comes to their dad and, and only believes that time spent with dad is valuable if they get information from dad that can help them? Uh, what if your kid's perspective on time spent with you is that its value was dependent upon the information or the tools or the resources that you gave them? And if there was no exchange of information or helpful tools that your kid was like, ah, I'm not sure that was really worth it. It's kind of a waste of my time. Does that perspective seem a little bit off to you a little bit? Do you see how extreme it would be if you spent like half the day with a family member or a really close friend and at the end of the day they were like, yeah, but we really didn't get anything done. Do you think that perspective might be missing something about the point of hanging out together? I love seeing some of the pictures that you guys shared this summer of the beach and hiking trips and things like that. Can you imagine spending like a whole Saturday on the beach with your family and then at the end they're like, yeah, we hiked and we talked, but we didn't really do anything. You don't really accomplish anything. I think that might be a sign that their perspective on your time together was a little bit extreme. You'd be like, gosh, we spent the whole day on the beach together. Was the point to accomplish something? Like, help me understand that. Maybe, maybe we need to get closer to the root. Maybe we need to get a little bit more radical with our understanding of the practice of prayer. I know I do. It's one of the main revelations of the sabbatical for me. My life has shifted over time. My prayer life has shifted. It looks more like a staff meeting now talk about the tasks of the day, divide responsibilities, end it as fast as I can to get back to work. David prays, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I've calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, I am content. In other words, David, who by the way is the king of the most powerful country in the world at the time, is not bringing a list of tasks and strategies to the Lord. Instead, he's coming to the Lord like a weaned child. What is that all about? He doesn't need to nurse, right? Not drawing from the mother, asking nothing, just content to be with the mom. The source, because being with her is all the kid wants to accomplish, if you even need to use that language. So I asked one of the young monks, like a 23-year-old monk, about praying so much of the day, and he said this. His, his response was really kind of surprising to me. He said, the only work that matters is work you do for God. And I wrote that down, I thought about it, and I think it's actually a brilliant response, because what he doesn't say there is, prayer is the only work that matters. It's not what he said. Nor does he say, the work that most people do doesn't matter. He didn't say that. What he said was, praying matters because it, ha it has value, because we do it for God. So living with monks reminded me of the value of prayer. Second, something about the purpose of prayer. Spending lots of time in prayer at the monastery made me realize that my relationship with God, my relationship, big picture, gotten way out of balance I mean, for several days, I prayed with them, and I, by the end of several days, I prayed for everything I could possibly imagine. I prayed for all of you. I prayed for your kids. I prayed for my kids. I prayed for, like, their future spouses. I prayed for my friends, my enemies. I prayed for the past, the present, the future. I prayed for every country I could imagine and think about. And by the, I'm, like, prayed out. And then, you know what happens? The bell rings again, and you got to go back and pray. And I'm like, what in the world am I going to pray about? I'm so prayed out. I have nothing else. I can't even think of anything else to, to, to pray about. And, and, and there's that other challenge 
which is that most of the prayers that they pray there were just the Psalms, just the Psalms right out of the Bible. And in the Psalms, there's a lot of confession of sin, and there's a lot of raw emotional pouring out of how you're feeling, and there's also a lot of straight-up adoration of God. And I was faced with the sobering reality that I simply don't do much of any of that. My relationship with God is about people and tasks, people and problems. That's what I pray about. I pray about what I have to do and how I'm going to get it done. And that's just simply not a very biblical prayer life. It's not a very well-rounded prayer life. If you actually pray the prayers of the Bible, you end up having really raw conversations about God, about like anger and resentment and shame. It covers the full range of emotion. You also end up spending a lot of time simply worshiping God, simply adoring God. And because my relationship with God in recent years has mostly been focused on figuring out what should we do and then figuring out how we should do it, it's felt kind of like a business agreement. Now, if my marriage felt like a business agreement, those of you who know us well would point that out to me and you would say, something's missing. Like, some sort of relational intimacy is missing. That thing that's supposed to be between you two to show that it's more than just a business relationship. It's missing. That thing that shows that you have more than just the shared responsibility for these three kids. Like, where is that, Nate? And my point is not that you need to feel close to God. Feelings come and go. My point is that I was confronted with the reality that God should be worshipped, God should be praised, God should be adored, and my relationship just hasn't included a whole lot of that as of late. It's been on the extreme end of relationship, almost like God's the venture capitalist and I'm the startup CEO. And I'm trying to do my best to like manage resources well. But it oftentimes it feels like a manager. And so after about a week of praying, when this realization like smacked me in the face, I just stopped praying for direction. I stopped praying for clarity. I stopped praying for help with my writing. And instead I asked for prayer, I asked for grace to match my heart to the words I was praying in the Psalms. And just to praise God. And then I asked for grace to come back an hour later and do it again. And then I asked for grace to come back two hours after that and do it again. And slowly this process of putting down my work and walking up to that chapel when that bell was ringing, it, it, just to be very simple about it, it just became less about me and more about God. And, uh, you know, did I need to ask him for the same thing I asked him for two hours ago? No. I didn't need to do that. But did I need to praise him as the king and the Lord of my life? Did I need to thank him for the goodness that he has poured out in my life? Did I need to acknowledge his faithfulness to me in my life? Yes. There's plenty of room in my life for more of that. There's plenty of room for more of that. And I think that's really the core of the purpose of prayer. It's worshiping God, and the monks reminded me of that. Benedict writes, there's nothing as important as the work of God, and by work of God, he means prayer. And that first week I was there, I was just constantly shaking my head. I felt like they weren't getting anything done. Every, they'd start working, and then they'd put their tools down, and they'd go pray. And I'm like, you're always taking a break to go pray. <laughs> and after about a week, I realized this, friends, I realized this, their work is prayer. 
And occasionally they take a break from that and they go do everything else, right? I've slipped into a pretty extreme perspective on the purpose of prayer. I've just been uh, asking for help for me and for others. It's certainly a valid part of prayer. Intercession is a valid part. Jesus teaches that. But the greater purpose of prayer is adoring God, worshiping God. And that's really important work. It's the main part. It's the core part. Those who pray a lot, those who worship God a lot, they're not extremists. They're radicals. They've discovered the root of life, the main part. And they are reminding us how to get closer to it. Which leads to the third thing I'll mention about radical approach to prayer. Getting back to the root of prayer. I noticed this, that prayer literally became the reference point to everything that happened there at the monastery. <laughs> Uh, so, like, they didn't say meet at the truck at 7. They said meet at the truck after lauds, which is one of the prayer times. They didn't say dinner is after vespers or after 6. They said dinner is after vespers, referring to the prayer time. It was probably the most practical thing, and for me, it emphasized this radical reality, which is we could label it the message of prayer. What does prayer communicate in and of itself? I think it's this, the essential truth that life comes from God. Life comes from God. Peace comes from God. The wisdom is from God. Um, being God. Being with God is at the root of life. Everything emanates from God. He is the connection point, the reference point. Not an add-on, not an extra, not a supplemental kind of piece of life. The essential part of life. And our connection with God, it's got to be the reference point. It's got to be what we're referring to all of the time. There's this beautiful scene in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. They return from captivity in Babylon after generations, and they find the Bible. It's been lost. And so they have this big worship experience, and for the first three hours of the day, they just read the Bible. And for the next three hours, they praise the Lord. And the song is recorded in Nehemiah 8 and 9, and it goes, Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. That's the tune that Josh put to it a couple years ago. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas, all that is in them. You give life to everything. The multitudes in heaven worship you. You give life to everything. And we're turning to you. We're returning to the source of life. You're the reference point. Our life is a gift of God. Our breath is a gift of God. And all that I am and all that I have, it comes from God. Friends, too often, and maybe you're like me, I try to fit prayer into my life. That's an extreme approach. I mean, just straight up, it's, just an, it's an extreme approach to prayer. It's treating the source of life as though it's a little seasoning to life. Radicals like monks, those who choose to live close to the root, remind me that at all times and in all ways, God is the source of life. I need to be returning to the true source. God should be my reference point, which brings me to this question. How are your conversations with God going right now in this season of your life? How, how are your conversations with God, your prayer? Let's just use a different word just to be honest. How are your conversations with God? Would you take a minute, write down a couple of words that might characterize your conversations with God? It's just for you.
challenge then is this, friends. Show up for the conversation. And show up regularly. Well, I just wrote dull. Okay, good. That's fine. That's fine. So show up for the dull conversation and show up regularly. I just wrote painful because it is, I'm grieving and it's hard to pray right now. Okay. So show up for the painful conversation and show up regularly. That's the way forward. I didn't write down anything because it's uh, kind of not happening right now. Okay, well, we got a real easy first step, don't we? Right? Show up for a conversation. Just show up for a conversation and show up regularly. Take this part of your life that for many of us, because we live in an extreme culture, has slid all the way to the back of the priority lists, hidden in the closet, it's covered with dust, whatever. Bring it back out to the front, recognize this is the lifeline, this is the source, the connection to God. Take a step in the right direction towards the root. How? Offer a handful of quick hints. Make prayer the first thing. The first thing. Hit the alarm, come to consciousness, check and see if you're breathing. If you are, thank God for that. Okay? Before your feet hit the floor. You can do this tomorrow morning. Before the feet hit the floor, I'm going to start by acknowledging God. Make it the first thing. Make it the middle thing. Do you take a lunch break? Do you drive the kids to school or pick them up at 12 or noon or uh, 2 or something like that? Is there some trigger, midday trigger? You could connect to a moment of pause and prayer to pray against the temptations of the day, to pray against the depression that sneaks in in the middle of the day, to pray against the pressures and to remind yourself of what really matters. The middle thing, make it the middle thing. Third idea, make it the last thing. I'm having really spicy Thai food with a friend early this week, and they asked me this great question. How do you engage, this person's, people are going to this person to get all kinds of support, emotional, relational support, and it's heavy. This person's like, how do you carry the weight of the pain of other people? This is exhausting. Well, you can't just not feel the pain, right? That's not Christian. But neither can you indefinitely carry the pain of others for, like, of the whole, like, all of your friends. Well, what are you going to do? Well, one of the solutions, make prayer the last thing. Say, Jesus, I got to go to sleep. But you're not going to sleep. So here are some of the things that I'm just burdened by. I know I have to pick some of these up tomorrow morning because it's part of my responsibility. I'm in relationship with these people. But for now, I will entrust these cares to you. Right? Make prayer your last thing. Uh, four, um, season is your friend. Creation happens in seasons. TV shows know this. Exercise programs know this. Like, if you're trying to, like, start a habit of prayer, don't think about the next six years. Think about five days. Say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to engage in, a, like, a five-day season of prayer. Morning prayer for five days. Right? Fifth idea, structure. Don't leave this to how you feel. Spontaneous prayer is beautiful. Don't rely on it. Create some structure. Pray a psalm. Find the benedictions at the end of all of Paul's letters. Pray those for your children. They're better words than the ones you're probably praying for. Involve some structure. Set alarms. Set triggers. Have a plan. Go through something. Use a prayer book. 
We wrote this prayer book, I don't know, several years ago. There's like 10 copies left in there in the bookstore. Morning prayers, midday prayers, evening prayers, prayers for certain situations, like the simplest prayer book known to man. There's a, there's a lot of white space in this book, right? Very short prayers. It's a great start. Final thought, tell somebody. If you had a partner, pray with somebody. And if you can't pray in the same room with the same person, then agree to pray at the same time with some person about the same sort of issues. The likelihood of your getting up for the next two or three weeks at 3.15 in the morning to pray for an hour all by yourself, not very high. But if you knew that 14 other dudes were waiting to pray with you and they expected you to come, and one of them was standing at the door with the right prayer book so that you could follow along, you probably wouldn't miss. You probably wouldn't miss. In fact, you'd just be there every time because you would be convinced that you are not doing it alone. That's the power of having others involved in your spirituality with you. So get a partner for the process, all right? Some people whose lives are uh, extreme or seem extreme, they're actually not. They're radical. They're at the root. We should allow them to teach us how to live. We should allow them to remind us about the value of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the message of prayer, Friends, monks pray a lot, but we're not monks, right? We're not monks, but we can allow them to point us in the right direction, to point us back to the root. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for your continued source of life and wisdom and goodness to us. May we accept and embrace and, in fact, just dive into the gift and the beauty of the gift of a relationship with you through prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you stand up with me?